Well, thank you, Brighton, for putting that together. Weren't the kids great? Fantastic. Fantastic. Speaking of children, the rest of you are dismissed to Children's Church. Children are dismissed. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we have read the three human songs of, birth songs of a Gospel of Luke, each time in our messages in the last couple of weeks. This is intentional. I want to impress these songs into your heart. So let's just begin by reading these texts. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. First, the song of Mary, then we'll look at the song of Zechariah, and then the song of Simeon. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And then in verse 67, the father of John the Baptist. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, the song of Simeon. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Well, we've been examining these three human birth songs of Christ, Mary's song, Zechariah's song, and Simeon's song. And we've been observing that Luke's gospel includes these inspired songs and they can be looked at really as a unit because they contain valuable lessons for us about the context of the birth of Christ that the birth of Christ wasn't just a a random event with no particular meaning, but it happened, as Apostle Paul said in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time. 
at just the right time, in just the right context, for just the right reasons. We've seen that the birth songs instruct us, particularly the Gentile readers of Luke's gospel, instructs us in some important themes that really help us place the birth of Christ into his proper understanding. So we've said that these are things that you must know beyond the manger, that the birth of Christ isn't just a random event. And we've looked at in the last couple of weeks six themes so far, the glory of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Israel, salvation from sin, the faithfulness of God, and Gentiles. And these are all necessary components to understanding the proper context and reasons for the birth of Christ. Now, you recall that what's unique and what's so special about these three human songs from Luke 1 and 2 is that they're comprised almost entirely of Old Testament quotes and citations. They're almost, if I could put it this way, completely unoriginal. That they're quotes, they're pieces of the Old Testament. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these three songs have been, have been put together to be our teacher, to help us to get caught up on the important Old Testament concepts that provide the setting for the birth of Christ. And so we have these six themes that we've looked at so far. We're going to just simply continue on. The seventh theme that we see in these three songs, we might call the might and mercy of God. The might and mercy of God. In fact, we could even add a subtitle, the proud defeated and the humble exalted. And so we might say this, the might and mercy of God, the proud defeated and the humble exalted. Now, it might have been easier to break those apart, but I really want you to see the contrast because you can't have one without the other. This theme really represents the choice of all of mankind. Jesus Christ didn't come to be some sort of Jewish version of, of Gandhi or Mother Teresa or Dr. Phil. That wasn't the purpose of Jesus Christ coming. He came to make a distinction, to make a separation. And it is a distinction between those who would humbly receive mercy and those who would proudly go down in spiritual defeat. In fact, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see him making that distinction. On the one hand, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. On the other hand, he says, You will die in your sins. So he continually made that distinction. Jesus wasn't born to bring the spirit of Christmas, as I saw one church sign say. He came to earth. He was born to offer salvation from sin and to make a distinction between the proud and the humble. And this is reflective of exactly what God did in the Old Testament. And this continues on in the ministry of Jesus. But let's see what this might and mercy of God looks like. The proud defeated and the humble exalted. First, the might of God to defeat the proud. Zechariah, in his song, beginning in verse 68... He declared the might of God to defeat the proud. And we mentioned last week that Christ would come in strength. Verse 69 of Luke 1. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Now we saw what the horn of salvation was. It is symbolic of kingly power, of national power. It's power to save. That to save you from your sin takes great effort, takes tremendous power. It's the power that would take Jesus all the way to the cross. It's the power for him to stay on that cross. It's the power for him to receive your eternal punishment in his own body as your sacrificial substitute. That took power. But the power of God to defeat the proud is seen even more clearly in verse 74. 
that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. The theme of Israel for centuries has been the constant defeat at the hand of their enemies. They've been defeated by the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Midianites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. I mean, in Israel's day, if you were going to be a major ancient power, you almost had to have on your resume, have defeated Israel at least once because everybody did it. It was the constant disobedience of Israel, their sinful rebellion that would cause God to continually give them over to their enemies. So how is it then that God will defeat their enemies? How will he defeat Israel's enemies? Well, very simply and very broadly by defeating sin and saving them and enabling them to serve the Lord and be under his protection, be under his care forever. So again, Christ had to come to conquer the ultimate enemy, sin and death, so that his people could live in peace and not under judgment. So Zechariah declared the might of God. Mary also declared the might of God. Look with me at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He's mighty. It it literally means it's possible. He's able. He is one who is capable of doing anything. In fact, the easiest way to think of what mighty is is to use a double negative, that there's nothing that God cannot do. That's his mighty character. And... She says he is holy. Holy is his name, his reputation. His holiness has to to do with being set apart, being completely different from all of his creation, being other than all of his creation. But it also speaks of his moral holiness, his purity holiness, his perfection. So Mary continues expressing God's might and the holiness of his name, his reputation. But now we see the outworking of his might the outworking of his holiness, the outworking of his purity. In verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm for he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's scattered the proud. It's the idea of dispersing them, separating them, dividing them. Now, if you think back to the book of Genesis, when was the first time that God separated people? It would be at the Tower of Babel when he confused the languages of humanity who was rebelling against him. But in this context, how has he scattered the proud? Mary tells us, in the thoughts of their hearts. This isn't so much a, a literal dispersing of and separating of people. This is more the winnowing, the threshing, the separating out of the thoughts of the wicked proud. And I think we can see this very clearly in the fact that God never makes gospel truth, he never makes salvation truth accessible by pure human logic and reason. Did you know that? You cannot figure out the gospel on your own. You cannot come to God based on your own reason. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The proud and the wicked, they don't seek after God, and so they're not going to be excited by the birth of Christ. In fact, the wicked would try to kill Christ as a child and then the wicked will kill Christ at the end of his earthly ministry. And all from the least to the greatest will pay the price for their rejection of Christ. Look what Mary says in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. By their rejection of Christ, those who think they're mighty are dethroned 
Those who will not give glory to God in Christ will pay an eternal price because in Jesus coming to offer salvation, there is also the very real threat of judgment on the other side of that coin to those who would reject him. Makes us think of a man by the name of Herod Agrippa. He was a Roman ruler of the territories of, ba- of Palestine and the, and the areas north of Palestine. And he was the grandson of the cruel Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill the child Jesus. But Herod Agrippa was, a, was responsible for the first death of the first apostle. He had James, the brother of John, executed. But Herod Agrippa, he was a proud man. He had no regard for the might of God. And shortly after having James executed, Herod... Fairly young man, he was 54 years old. He delivered a great speech in his royal robes and he expected to receive lots of laud and accolade for this and he did in fact receive that. The people shouted, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. And Acts 12, 23 records what happened next. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. By the way, the implication of that text, the order in Greek is that he was eaten by worms first and then he died. And so that was the cause of his death. What does Acts say happened right after that? That the gospel was suddenly shut down because of this great man. Nope, just the opposite. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The gospel of Christ is not stopped by so-called mighty men of this earth. Now, we don't know exactly what Mary's Old Testament reference is to the scattering, the proud and the thoughts of their hearts, bringing down the mighty from their thrones. But we have a pretty good idea and probably the best possibility comes to us from the book of Daniel. And you don't have to turn here. But in Daniel chapter 4, we see the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He is the emperor of the Babylonian Empire, and he's had a terrible nightmare. None of his wise men and sages could interpret the dream, so he called upon Daniel, the worshiper of the one true God. Daniel was scared to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream meant because it wasn't good for Nebuchadnezzar. And so he, he was kind of hesitant. But Nebuchadnezzar said, no, tell me anyway. Well, here's what the dream meant that because of his great pride, Nebuchadnezzar would be made like a beast of the field for seven years. Daniel added his own little sermonette. He said, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. In other words, repent. Maybe you can avoid this. Maybe you can delay it at least. And we ought to remember that it was God who raised up Nebuchadnezzar as an instrument of righteousness and judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. But Nebuchadnezzar had a short memory and he forgot who raised him up. Just a year later, he's walking on the roof of his palace and he's looking around and he actually says out loud, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence. Oh, if he had just stopped there. And for the glory of my majesty. Well, what happened then? A voice from heaven said, and I paraphrase, here it comes. Daniel 4.33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. His reason left him, or as Mary put it, the thoughts of his mind were scattered and he was completely humiliated. Seven years of being a cow, basically. Well, how did he fare after that? 
Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 34, tells us, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And then he goes on to record, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And here's the connection. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, there's only one king truly worthy of glory and God does not share glory. So the coming of Christ placed in the context of Christ fulfilling the the plan of a mighty God to strike down the, the proud in judgment, all who would not receive the Lord Jesus as Savior, this begins to make sense. But now there's another side to this coin. The other half of this theme, the might and mercy of God, is the mercy of God to exalt the humble. The mercy of God to exalt the humble. Jesus gave a definition of humility. He said that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must come like a little child. And this doesn't come as so, as so, as so often taught. It doesn't mean coming in some sort of innocence. You're not innocent. There is no coming to God in innocence. It means coming as a child. What does a child have to offer? Nothing. There's nothing there. There's no strength, no power, no so-called good works. A child is, is helpless. They're vulnerable. They're powerless. Look at the mercy of God to exalt the humble in Simeon's song, Luke chapter 2, verse 29. How humble is he? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon's a nobody. The only biographical description we get of him is that he's a man in Jerusalem. There's not much more to that. He was righteous, he was devout, meaning he was a repentant, saved Jew, and the Holy Spirit revealed to him that he would be among the first human beings on earth to recognize and worship Messiah. But he characterizes himself merely as a servant of the Lord. And what is his greatest blessing in life? His greatest blessing is simply that now he can die having held and worshiped the Son of God. As a matter of fact, right after Simeon gave his beautiful song of worship, another person chosen by God to behold Messiah and to be witness to him comes up. Anna the 84-year-old widow who worshiped at the temple night and day waiting on the redemption of Israel. Verse 38 says that she saw Jesus and began to give thanks to God and immediately began bearing witness to others that the redemptive, the redemption of Israel had arrived. Who's God reveal himself to? An old man waiting to die. An old woman waiting for God to return. Two nobodies who received the great privilege to be among the first to see God with their own eyes. God is merciful to the humble. Zechariah celebrates the mercy of God to the humble. Luke 1.72, he speaks of God showing the mercy promised to our fathers. Verse 78, he speaks of the tender mercy of God, literally the inward from the gut mercy of God, the felt mercy of God. And what, according to Zechariah, does the mercy of God give? In verse 74 of Luke chapter 1, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now listen, this is absolutely rich. 
This is so rich here that we need to kind of take a little detour from what he says here. What that statement tells us is that Zechariah is as Jewish as you can get. Now, I want to show this to you. The Jews had a theology of heaven. It wasn't a particularly sophisticated theology. It wasn't particularly developed. But they had a major difference in what their emphasis on heaven was compared to American evangelical Christianity's emphasis on heaven. Christians, those whose spiritual membership in the church, we tend to emphasize going up to heaven. And that's right and that's proper. We sing, I'll fly away. And we understand that. We look forward to the rapture of the church. This is proper. We're able to be fearless concerning our own death because we understand that to be absent from the body is to go up and to be with the Lord. We remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said in John 14 that he was going away to prepare a place for us and he would return and bring us to himself. We tend to emphasize going up to heaven and rightly so, but not so much with the Jew. Based on the promises given to Abraham, the Jew tended to emphasize heaven coming down to earth. That God was going to fulfill the land promises given to Abraham. That God is going to give great abundance, great prosperity, and peace to his people someday. That God himself will be here on the earth. In fact, Abraham reflected this dream. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8, records, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. This is land. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now here's the key, here's the linchpin. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's dream was not, I can hardly wait to leave this land and get to the heavenly city. His dream was, I can hardly wait for the heavenly city to come to my land. Very different. So the dream and the hope of the Jew was to serve the Lord without fear of enemies and to bask in his presence on this earth. And so knowing that the Messiah who would bring peace to the earth was being born, Zechariah speaks of serving the Lord without fear and doing so in holiness and righteousness all our days, ultimately meaning eternally. And Zechariah, knowing his Bible, knew that this had been promised. And where does he get this idea? Most likely one of the places he got this idea was from Jeremiah 32. I'd encourage you to keep a finger in Luke chapter 1 and turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 32. Right after Isaiah, right before Lamentations. Now in Jeremiah 32, God tells the prophet Jeremiah in the 7th century B.C., that because of Judah's sin, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, was coming to capture and to burn and destroy Jerusalem. Why was he going to do this? Jeremiah 32, verse 30 tells us, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me to anger, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants 
of Jerusalem. And God condemns them. In fact, he condemns them for doing something unthinkable, offering their own children as human sacrifices. Verse 35 condemns them of this. So the dreams of the few righteous Jews to simply live in the land in peace and prosperity under the blessing of God, obeying the Lord and enjoying his goodness, that dream was literally going up in smoke. But God gives hope, beginning in verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. It is very rare in Scripture that we hear of God speaking of doing something with all his heart, with all of his soul. Or Zechariah puts it, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God is so merciful. But Mary also extolled the mercy of God to exalt the humble. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. In three very short phrases, Mary will encapsulate two things. The spirit of Psalm 107, and she'll also describe the coming ministry of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 52, beginning in the second half, we'll start in the beginning. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. She's quoting nearly verbatim here, Psalm 107, verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And she really gives us the spirit of Psalm 107, verses 40 and 41 also that says he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless waste, but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. And in the end of Psalm 107, gives an admonition, the response to these truths Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Or as Jesus would say so often, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So Mary embodies the spirit of Psalm 107. She also embodies what Jesus would do in his ministry. What did he do? He exalted the humble. He offered salvation to the least. He filled the hungry with good things and even demonstrated this by literally filling the hungry with bread but more importantly, feeding their souls with the truth of the gospel. And the rich, he sent away empty. We think of the rich young ruler who went away without salvation. We think of the leaders of Israel who chose their power over their Messiah. So he did all of those things. And the mercy of God to the humble isn't just a theoretical concept to Mary. It's personal to her. Look at verse 48. 
for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From, for behold, for now on, all generations will call me blessed. This isn't just Mary marveling that she's been chosen to be the mother of the Lord. In the context here of verse 47, she's marveling that she's been chosen for salvation. This is amazing to her. It's very personal to her. And in verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things, not just for Israel, not just for the world, but for me. This is phenomenal that the God who is working out his massive, overarching, eternal, redemptive plan for his creation should have the time to do great things for me. That's phenomenal. The seventh theme in these songs that sets Christ's birth in its context, the might and mercy of God, the proud defeated and the humble exalted. Now, themes eight and nine are very related, but they're worth considering separately. The eighth theme, the coming of a kingly Messiah. The coming of a kingly Messiah. And this has been covered to a certain degree, but we want to make sure and delineate this as a separate category. Again, Jesus didn't come as a humanitarian figure. He didn't come to be a poster child for liberal social justice agendas. That's not why he came. He came to be a king. He came to be a kingly Messiah. Now, you're familiar, if you've been at Grace for any period of time, Messiah is from the Hebrew word used of this coming representative of God that simply means the anointed one. The Greek version is the Christ. Christ, Messiah, interchangeable terms. Zechariah got it. He knew that his son, John, who would be John the Baptist, would be a herald, a forerunner, the advance notice giver that the king was coming. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And you, child, speaking of his son, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Zechariah here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was simply proclaiming what the Old Testament had already said. As a matter of fact, he's proclaiming what are essentially the last words of God to Israel before 400 years of silence. Malachi 3, verse 1, gives a promise from God. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. So who is that speaking in Malachi 3.1? That is Jesus Christ speaking. In the very last words of God to Israel, before he goes completely silent, he says in Malachi 4, beginning in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, is this actually Elijah? Perhaps in the future time. That's another topic for another day. But there is definitely at least a partial fulfillment. Zechariah himself tells us this. Look all the way at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, right there in verse 13. This is the angelic proclamation to Zechariah, confirms for us who this Elijah is. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What was going to be the job of the forerunner? It was to soften the people, so to speak, to say the king is coming. The one who is offering salvation is coming. The one who you've been looking for for centuries and centuries is on his way. Prepare your hearts. And how did John prepare their hearts? He proclaimed to them to be baptized and to repent. It's very interesting that the last prophetic word in the 5th century B.C. is the forerunner is coming. And God's first prophetic word in the first century A.D., Matthew 3, 1 and 2, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preparing the way. He was the Elijah who stood for true faith in Israel. Well, Zechariah goes on to describe the glory of this coming king in verse 78 of Luke chapter 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The time of 400 years of silence was a time of darkness, a time of despair in which Israel sank deeper and deeper into pharisaical behavior, the development of a works-based false Judaism that bore really no resemblance at all to the faith of Abraham, the faith of Isaac, the faith of Jacob, the faith of Moses. But breaking through the darkness... Zechariah says, the sunrise. Malachi 4, verse 2 gave this hope that someday the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, the sun of righteousness being the son of God, a glorious kingly son. And then we have Simeon's song. His song references the majesty of the coming kingly Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, verse 32 that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He's a light to, receive sal- to, to reveal salvation to the Gentile and the glory of God revealed once again to Israel. Listen, the, the coming kingly Messiah, he wasn't just being born to be a good man, to be an example of humility and kindness. He was coming to rule. But at his first coming, he didn't take the throne that was rightfully his. His so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it really fell flat. I mean, there should have been orchestras and bands and, and all kinds of celebrations happening. But basically, he got to the gate of Jerusalem and got off the donkey and walked to the temple by himself. And then a few days later, he was being killed. In fact, the only time in the Gospels that Jesus is publicly recognized as the king of Israel is on the sign right above his cross. It's the only time. So at his first coming, what was Jesus doing? He began gathering and gathering and gathering kingdom citizens for a time yet to come. That gathering is still happening. Today we call kingdom citizens Christians, those that he continues to gather. But if Jesus is a human king, if he's a divine king, what is his connection to Israel? Why should Israel bow? Why should they worship him? Why should they exalt him? Why should they exalt this particular king? Well, because of the ninth theme that we see in these three songs, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. Israel should bow. They should worship this king because he's descended from the king of promise, the king to whom God made a stunning commitment In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives what is famously called the Davidic covenant given to King David. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then God goes on to say, in your house, in your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now in Luke chapter three, we have a genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's not, as the text seems to indicate, um, a, a tracing of Joseph's line. It seems to be a tracing of Mary's line. Joseph is named, but you never listed a woman as the reason for a genealogy, and it seems that Luke stayed with that tradition. And that can be debated one way or another, but I can give you an ironclad reason why I believe that the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 3 is a genealogy of Mary and Mary's line, because God promised David that this eternal king, quote, would come from your body. And Jesus sure didn't come from Joseph's body. Therefore, Mary must be a descendant of King David. Joseph's genealogy that we get in Matthew 1 gives the other side of this. That gives the legal right of Jesus to be the king. And Mary's genealogy in Luke chapter 3 gives us the biological right the human right of Jesus to be king. Now, Mary doesn't need to mention the Davidic covenant in her song. The fact that she, a descendant of David, is pregnant with the king, with the Messiah, that's enough. That's proof of the Davidic covenant right there. But the most overt, the, the obvious fulfillment is given by Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verse 68 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He's being very precise, very specific. And for Zechariah to mention this in the song is huge. It's massive in importance because it confirms that the birth of Jesus Christ is both fulfilling the Davidic covenant and beginning the process of ultimate final fulfillment, which hasn't come yet. And in a book of our Bible written about half by King David, we would expect to find a major theme concerning the Davidic covenant. That would be the book of Psalms. In fact, I want to have you turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is very easy to find because it comes right after Psalm 1. Now, there are 10 Psalms generally referred to and considered as royal psalms, psalms concerning a messianic king who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. And they focus on a Davidic-like figure who, as God's son, lives in Zion, lives in Jerusalem. He rules over God's people and is heir to the divine promise. So what can we learn about this messianic king who fulfills the Davidic covenant? Let's just put together a little list from the 10 royal psalms. First thing we can learn, he is the son of God. A very basic, basic bit of information there. He is the son of God. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is a, a kingly crowning formula of crowning a king. The second thing we can learn about this messianic king, he will rule, not just Israel, he will rule the world. He'll rule the world. Verse 8 of Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Earth has never successfully had an emperor of the earth. This will be the first time. There's a third thing we can learn about this messianic king. 
He will judge all who defy him. He'll judge all who defy him. Verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And we can learn a fourth thing about this messianic king. He will protect all who serve him. So third, he will judge all who defy him. Fourth, he will protect all who serve him. The very end of Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's the language of protection. Turn with me to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 tells the story of God's faithful protection of his anointed, his chosen ones, specifically of God's faithful love toward his chosen king. And so we get our our fifth thing that we can learn about this messianic king. God will bless the king's reign forever. He'll bless the king's reign forever. Look at Psalm 18, beginning in verse 49. For this I will praise you, O Lord, right at the end of the psalm. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever turn with me to psalm 20 just a page over or so psalm 20 tells the story of god's heavenly protection of david and his favor toward david and so what can we learn the sixth thing about the messianic king god preserves david's line with heaven's power god preserves david's line with heaven's power this is a short psalm and worth reading to the choir master a psalm of david may the lord answer you in the day of trouble May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. That's spiritual protection. Verse four, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And here's the key. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And why is it important to save King David? Because in saving King David, Messiah is brought into the world. If David's kingship ends, then Messiah's kingship ends. Look right next door to it, Psalm 21, another royal psalm. This is the story of King David rejoicing in the strength and the favor of God towards him. And this would give us our our seventh thing about the messianic reign. God pours his glory on the king. God pours his glory on the king. Verse one, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High... He shall not be moved. Now, this is speaking first of King David. The Lord Jesus Christ is never said to have asked for long life, as we see in verse 4 here. But it's not at all a stretch to hear a very familiar echo from the New Testament. 
Philippians 2, beginning in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's glory is poured out and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ the King. Let's look at another royal psalm, Psalm 45. Psalm 45, and this would give us an, an eighth aspect of the reign of a kingly Messiah. That is, he is a king of might and mercy. That sounds familiar to us. Scripture is always consistent with their theme, with its themes. He is a king of might and mercy. Psalm 45, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Here's the description. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. He's a king of might and mercy. Psalm 45 also gives us a ninth aspect of the coming Davidic reign of Messiah. He is fully God. He is fully God. You want to see proof for the deity of Christ? It's right here in Psalm 45. Look at verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I want you to notice something here. The king is God in verse 6, and the one who anointed him king is God in verse 7. And of course, this is cited very famously in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Turn to another royal psalm, Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is unique in that it is one of two psalms written by David's son Solomon. Psalm 127 also is written by Solomon. This gives us a tenth aspect of the Davidic king. He is a king that other kings worship. He is a king that other kings worship. Psalm 72, beginning in verse 8. May ye have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now, of course, we get a small little taste of this at Christmas time when wise men from the east some say they were kings come to worship jesus turn to another kingly psalm royal psalm psalm 89 psalm 89 this gives us our 11th aspect of a davidic reign this king is proof of god's steadfast love this king is proof of god's steadfast love psalm 89 beginning in verse 1 I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever with my mouth. I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. You will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne 
for all generations. God promised to send a king who would crush God's enemies and save God's people. And Psalm 89 confirms that this plan is still on track. In fact, look with me at verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. Look at verse 35. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. The coming of Jesus proves that God's steadfast love never fails. He is filled with steadfast, faithful love. There's another kingly psalm, royal psalm, Psalm 101. Psalm 101. This is the determination of King David to do only that which is right, only that which is just, and to rule with perfect justice. Now, he didn't attain to that standard. He can't do that, but his offspring can. This gives us a 12th aspect of the Messianic Davidic rule. He will rule in holiness. He will rule in holiness. A psalm of David, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set anything before my eyes, anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. He will rule in holiness and he will demand nothing less. Turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 gives us a 13th aspect of the Davidic reign of Messiah. And that is that he will begin his reign with judgment. He will begin his reign with judgment. Psalm 110 verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And skipping down to verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. God is telling the Davidic Messiah King, his son Jesus, your day is coming. Now, this must have been an important message to the Lord that King David is saying, God says to my Lord God, The second most often Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament is Leviticus 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. Seven times. That's very important. But as important as that is, the most often quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110, verse 1, quoted or alluded to 23 times. 11 out of 27 New Testament books, 7 out of 9 New Testament authors. Why? because it's a major key to understanding the importance of the coming of the Messiah. He must be a Davidic 
king. As a matter of fact, there's one more kingly psalm, and that is Psalm 144. If you turn with me there briefly, Psalm 144 is a prayer for peace and prosperity through a Davidic king. Verses 1 through 11 speak of God defending his people all throughout history. He protects them and protects them. Yes, even as he judges them, even as he brings calamity to them, he still keeps protecting them because he's protecting them so that a new era can come, a new dawn can arise. And in verses 12 through 15, this speaks of a future day when the blessings of the Lord have come down to earth and come to his people. This gives us our, our 14th thing we learn about the Messianic Davidic king, that he will provide a peaceful, prosperous world. He'll provide a peaceful, prosperous world. We see this beginning in verse 12. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Listen, what do we learn about this messianic Davidic king? He is the son of God. He will rule the world. He will judge all who defy him. He will protect all who serve him. God will bless the king's reign forever. God preserves David's line with heavenly power. God pours his glory on the king. He's a king of might and mercy. He is fully God. He's a king that that kings worship. He is proof of God's steadfast love. He will rule in holiness. He will begin his reign with judgment. He will provide a peaceful, prosperous world but it doesn't seem like he's done that yet. Christmas time seems to fall flat when compared to this. The themes of the birth songs that we've seen, the glory of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Israel, salvation, faithfulness of God, Gentiles, the might and mercy of God, the coming of a kingly Messiah and the fulfillment of of the Davidic covenant, they do set the stage for the birth of Messiah. But these birth songs, these themes are dripping with significance and anticipation on how these nine themes, all of them, will be worked out in their entirety in the future. See, these songs don't just tell you what you need to know to be understanding beyond the manger. They tell you what you need to know to be part of Christ's future kingdom. And to see how these themes are worked out in the future, you have to come tonight because we're going to see how God finishes and closes this story. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you and praising you for this Christmas time in which we get to remember Christ our Lord. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, but very few recognize him as that. But there is coming a day when that will not be the case, when all will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we look forward to that day. In the meantime, here we are still on earth and our glorious king hasn't come yet, but we can remember the first time he came. We remember the manger. We remember sweet little Mary chosen by God to be the mother of our Lord. We remember faithful Joseph who 
kept his wife and who supported his family and taught our Lord Jesus the things that a, a Jewish boy ought to know and raised him up. We remember the shepherds, the, the humble ones who came to worship the baby. We remember Simeon and Anna, these precious old saints who were chosen by you as the very least to see him who is the very greatest. We remember the unknown wise men from the east. No one knows their names. They were famous in their day, I'm sure, but they're most famous for worshiping the child Jesus. We remember all these things with fondness and with joy and delight and warmth, but they ought to lead our hearts to yearn for Christ, to yearn to see him not as the baby, but as the king. We love him and we are thankful for him, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.